Welcome to Move Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Clapson. The aim of this podcast is to explore, learn, and spread the message of rewilding and natural movement so that we as humans can live in more alignment with our nature and reclaim what it means to be fully alive. The modern world has stripped away so much that used to nourish our mind, body, and soul. This podcast will help illuminate how we can reclaim and restore our innate, wild, capable, and strong spirit. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Move Wild Podcast. Thank you all so much for tuning in to today's episode. So today I have the pleasure of sharing a conversation that I recorded not too long ago with Rafe Kelly. So before I jump into that, I also wanted to let you guys know that in a couple of days, my new book, How to Thrive in the Modern World, is going to be released. So if you're not already following me over on Instagram at move underscore wild, that's where I'm going to let you know how you can get access to a copy of this book where I teach the key principles, practices, and the core pillars, I believe, that we need to really reclaim vitality and thrive in this crazy world that we live in. So follow me over there if you're not already to learn on the day that it comes out, October 1st, how you can get access to my new book. I'm really excited to get it out to all of you. So let's jump into today's episode. I'm just going to read you Rafe's bio and then we'll jump into the conversation. Natural movement has been the key theme of Rafe's life since he was born. He has immersed himself in various martial arts practices such as kickboxing, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Capoeira, and Muay Thai. Rafe was one of the first parkour teachers in North America and co-founded Parkour Visions, one of the most highly respected parkour teaching institutions in the world. When Rafe encountered the work of Georges Chabert and Method Natural, he started to take his practice into the natural world, climbing trees, lifting locks, swimming, and carrying rocks underwater. He is the founder of Evolve Move Play and it is his passion to help people build the physical practice that will help them make the strongest, most adaptable and resilient version of themselves in movement and in life. This was a really fun conversation. I love talking to Rafe. He's got so much knowledge around movement and so many cool thoughts and ideas that he shared in this conversation. It was really great talking to him. So let's jump into today's episode. Uh, Looking forward to seeing what you guys think and catch me on the other side for how you can connect with Rafe and how you can connect with me. Sounds good. All right. So welcome to the podcast, Rafe. I really appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, it's good to see you, Jake. Yeah, absolutely. So to start with, I'd like to get a little bit of your kind of backstory and what was the journey that got you into movement and where you are today? Yeah, it's always interesting when to start that story. But um, I grew up at the end of a dirt road as a kind of child of the counterculture. But my family had deep roots in the Skagit County in uh, Northwest Washington. Um, my, my family homesteaded in uh, Northwest Washington in 1920. And they set up uh, the first shake mill in a little town called Cedar Woolley. So uh, I grew up on the land that was homesteaded in 1920 and had lots of freedom, lots of opportunity to run around in the woods, but I also had learning disabilities and struggled in school. Um, so I started martial arts early on at like six years old. And then I had a mentor who came into my life when I was eight who um, took over my education when I couldn't continue in the main school. And he did a lot of rough and tumble play with me, which was really influential and really helped me overcome some of my learning disabilities and get engaged with school. And also read a lot of, uh, um, we read the Lord of the Rings, and then from the Lord of the Rings, we went into the Iliad and the Odyssey, and 
uh, you know, history and stuff like that. And got really into epic literature. So that, um, that had a big influence on, on where I would go as well. Uh, and then um, skip forward a few years, I kind of was disillusioned by the recognition that, uh, that I couldn't really live like Aragorn or Frodo and uh, I'd have to have a job of some kind. Um, so initially I wanted to be a, a novelist and write fantasy novels, um, but then I got interested in anthropology at a really early age. Uh, so around 13 years old, I started reading all the anthropology books in the local library. Um, and I was very intellectual and not very movement oriented at that stage of my life, but I kind of, you know, and then we got a computer and I was like on the computer all the time and early days of the internet, reading everything that I could and getting involved in web forums. And, um, I just kind of felt trapped in my body. I didn't have a good relationship with my body anymore. And the 1996 Olympics happened. I saw gymnastics and I got really into gymnastics and track and field. Um, and I actually started doing uh, martial arts again. My brother showed me the early UFCs. So I got involved in that and it pretty much been involved in movement ever since. So I uh, stayed with gymnastics kind of off and on um, up until I became a coach when I was 21 and then kept training pretty much until I was 25 in gymnastics. Uh, did my my school shut down my jiu-jitsu school but i kept boxing and meeting up with friends to do boxing and like started a boxing club in my local community college and then um took some jiu-jitsu through the through the school there picked up some russian martial arts and then when i was 23 i discovered parkour and that was really where kind of uh truly sort of ignited and I got very, very dedicated to parkour and became one of the earliest adopters here in the United States and one of the community leaders and uh, organized a whole teaching program here in the Northwest and eventually um, uh, organized the development of a gym, which was, I think it was the fourth gym in the world. Um, so very early in that. And at the same time that I discovered, not long after I discovered parkour, I discovered uh, Méthode Naturelle. And I'd always been a kid who liked being in the woods. So like the idea of parkour, but in the woods was really, really engaging to me. Mm -hmm. So I did that. And um, so I started melding in the ideas of natural movement. I was also really inspired by CrossFit and kind of interested in the ideas behind the CrossFit movement all the way back in 2005, 2006. And so kind of those ideas were all synthesizing and brewing. And um, I worked with uh, Erwin LaCour, who went on to found MoveNet and kind of worked in parallel with him on this idea of, of, a, of a more kind of um, synthetic approach to movement. And we split ways. And so I decided that I needed to, to focus on the parkour community and growing the parkour community for a while. But I always had the general natural movement frame in the back of my mind. And I built a martial arts program and a strength training program at my parkour gym. Um, and then in 2013, uh, it was time to walk away from the gym and uh, really bring my concept of involvement with play to life. So there's lots of, it's a long story. There's a lot to it. <laughs> so I don't yeah. know, I don't always know what aspect to get into, but um, yeah, we can dig into whatever you're interested in. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting aspects there. I'd love to dig into a little bit of rough housing because you mentioned that that helped early on with your learning disabilities. And then obviously you kind of carried that on with the martial arts and that, Kind of aspect and you are big on integrating roughhousing into your training and into your coaching so i'd love yeah. to get your thoughts on that and why you think it's so important and kind of your approach to it in the way that you do coach it 
Yeah. So I, I brought my dad and I had a kind of difficult relationship as a kid. He, you know, he, he's a little too much into the counterculture, not enough, not enough discipline, not enough responsibility, too much freedom is my kind of the way that I see my dad. And, and, and he didn't really take on the responsibility of being a dad, maybe in the best way, but it did provide a beautiful place for me. And my favorite way of interacting with my dad was he was really, he was a wrestler and collegiate, uh, um, collegiate athlete, uh, collegiate uh, football player. And he was, uh, you know, very strong and physical and he would throw us around and swing us around. And so that was really engaging. You know, that was one of my favorite aspects of that. And then when my mentor came into my life, he could tell that I had this intense physicality and this need to wrestle. And so he would do that with me all the time. Um, and then when I was 12 or 13 years old, I started, well, 12 years old, I started uh, mentoring or I started babysitting for kids who are part of a, a religious group that I was part of. Um, so I would be around and there was like the two and three year olds who, who were, you know, uh, part of the community. And I ended up being the person who was willing to just get down on the floor and lift them up and throw them in the air and wrestle with them and tickle them. And so a lot of people really appreciated that. And I was asked to babysit. So I noticed that kids were really craving this and they didn't have a lot of outlets for it at a very early age. Um, and of course, you know, rough housing and martial arts are obviously connected and I was in parallel training martial arts and interested in martial arts. So then I, uh, I was exposed to the ideas of uh, Frank Ferencic, uh, who wrote a book called The Exuberant Animal. And he talked about rough and tumble play in that in a way that was um, really interesting as well. And that got me into the work of Stuart Brown, which eventually led me to Yak Pangsep and his work on rats and rough and tumble play. Um, Jordan Peterson as well led me to Yak, uh, Yak Pangsep. So I had all these different kind of influences around that. And I started a, I was very interested in self-defense as well. And so when I started my martial arts program at, uh, at Parkour Visions, our parkour gym, we started with a very strong self-defense orientation. It was very, it was a very clinical and very kind of um, sort of technical progressive approach to martial arts. And we got very little, we got very poor response from our students, right? People who were, who were coming for parkour and were interested in parkour weren't super interested in this. And what we realized was that parkour had this inherent element of play, which we weren't really representing in uh, the martial arts as we were giving them to people. So we went back to the drawing board and basically asked like, if parkour is kind of getting people back into movement because of the way that it taps into play, what would an approach to the martial arts look like that also respected the, the uh, also respected play? And so we started to organize our training around games and, and ways of kind of getting people to learn fundamental skills through that. Um, and then around the same time, and as I left Parkour Visions and started uh, um, development of play, uh, I ran into the work of Ido Portal, and through Ido, I, um, I met Shira Yaziv, who's the founder of the Athletic Playground in, um, in it was not through Ido directly, but through researching Ido, I ran into Shira in the Athletic Playground. And we did an exchange where she helped me promote my seminar, and um, she got to come for free, and she did a private lesson with me. And she taught me some contact improvisation. And I'd run into some contact improvisation through the parkour community and found it an interesting way to do what we call the liveness in parkour, which is something we could dig into. Um, but that also became a real touchstone. And so I went and learned also from uh, Tom Wexler and from eventually Joseph Frusek and Fighting Monkey, a lot of these 
games where we're engaged through, it's kind of like a contact improv, um, uh, Aaron Cantor as well. And I started to see that this base kind of underlying substance of rough and tumble play, it wasn't just about the martial arts and about your potential for combative abilities, but it was about really being able to tune and interact, effect, interact effectively with another human being, the most basic level of kind of the language of, of, of physicality and touch. And so I started developing that element of it as well and, and noticing that when we built rapport through these contact improv-based games, um, it provided a lot more kind of kinesthetic intelligence and um, ability to create trust that could allow better, um, more effective practice, more optimal practice of the martial arts. So I'm always very focused on the martial arts, but it's not necessarily that contact improv serves martial arts, it's just that I tend to think that way because of my background. Um, so that's a little bit about how how we we ended up with it, sort of the history of it. I'm happy to dig into anything that you want, sort of conceptually around, you know, what we think about it and where it comes from. But yeah, maybe that's a good point to uh, to let you bud. Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because it is such a missing element in martial arts. I see that kind of playful element and that ability to adapt within a kind of interaction and and really yeah bring in that level of play that roughhousing does bring in and yeah i would yeah i'd love to touch on like what does that look like kind of specifically in in what you guys do now is it contact improvisation based is it more of the kind of on the martial arts scale of like roughhousing more rough and tumble play do you mix both of those things in together um with evolve move play and your coaching today yeah so um Generally, we start with sort of contact improv-based training and we weave in a variety of concepts to help people start learning how to kind of generate interesting movement together um, and learn how to sort of feel how to interact with somebody and learn how to um, listen effectively to someone else's movement. And that's, that's where we start. And then we generally progress towards uh, the martial arts. There's also a progression from contact improv just to more, more acrobatic, more intense, more rhythmical, you know, expressing different things uh, within the contact improv. Um, but over the course of like our week-long seminars, we tend to move to, from the contact improv towards uh, the martial arts. And then depending on what we're, you know, we, we vary themes or look at different things. So the most recent one, for instance, we're focused a lot on, um, on how to how to grapple. So we were just working on basic grappling. We, we were essentially using a combination of catch wrestling and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu approaches where we were uh, getting people used to the fundamental ground grappling positions. Um, you know, the guard, side control, mount, back control, um, and then working on pinning as opposed to submissions as a way to learn to control uh, the opponent. Um, before we ask people to to be able to, to utilize a choke or a lock. And we find that's a really good way to do that. And it's very fun and people are super engaged by it. Um, the previous seminar that we taught, we were more, more focused on striking. So we spent a lot of time basically getting people to feel confident to strike and to feel like they had the emotional wherewithal to take being struck and kind of working through some of the emotional hangouts people have around being very afraid of striking, being unwilling to hit somebody. Um, and then we worked on like technical aspects of power, uh, power production using like medicine balls to work on, you know, opening up the hip, being able to chain the body into a strike. 
hitting the pads and then kind of building some of the technical stuff. So that's a couple examples of it. And then within our own training, the staff, a lot of us, uh, not all of us, but a lot of us have a very strong martial arts background, particularly interested in martial arts. So a lot of the times we are essentially doing kind of MMA-based sparring um, in our own training and we'll mix it up. Uh, so we'll be doing, you know, one day it'll be you know, just focusing on takedowns. The next day we'll be focusing on on just our hands, um, or we might be focusing on kicks. And then uh, sometimes we spar like full MMA sparring, sometimes it's kickboxing sparring, sometimes it's wrestling. And then um, we, we also utilize a lot of concepts that we've picked up over the years from Steve Morris, who's a really uh, amazing thinker in the strength conditioning world, or sorry, not the strength conditioning, but the self-defense slash, you know, understanding the violence world, and Rory Miller. Um, so we do mini fights. So we'll fight for you know 15 seconds at as intense as possible, 30 seconds as intense as possible, um, and we do fight or we do train. Uh, you know when we're training at full intensity, we use gloves and mouth guards um, and cups but, and shin guards. But then we also do a lot of sparring, completely barefisted, so that we can learn how to. You know, there's there's different affordances. In, in striking with your bare hands and being able to, to guard and parry with hands versus gloves. Mm. Um, and so we want to know those. We also need want to know, you know, uh, have an idea of like, you know, how to deliver a punch safely because there's lots of things that you can do safely in a glove that you can't do safely without a glove and it's very easy to break your hand. So we think it's very important that if a martial artist wants to have self-defense ability, um, that they are regularly exposing um, themselves to a bare knuckle type sparring. But we also think that it's not a very safe way to spar at high intensity. So you need to mix high intensity in which you're using protective equipment with lower moderate intensity in which you're training with the kind of tools that you'd use in an actual street fight. Yeah, awesome. That's really cool. Um, so I guess one of, the, one of the broader concepts that you like to utilize in your coaching and, and um, your training and from what I've seen and from when I've done workshops with you is, is using play as a method to get people to learn and to get people to develop new skills and perhaps explore different areas of movement or training that can't really be explored through structured training. So mm -hmm. I'd like to get your thoughts on like why you integrate play and why you think play is so important and what, what does play do for us that perhaps other ways of training doesn't do and and yeah i guess why do you integrate it into your coaching and training yeah i mean play is the original training it's the original education system right everything uh most animals do not train right um they don't work right they they do the things that are necessary for their survival which are actually motivational so you don't have to pay a cat to stalk things and catch them and bite them, right? Cats are built with inherent motivational drives that make that highly rewarding. And even when they're well-fed, they want to do that. Same thing for a dog, chasing eggs. Um, human beings also engage in hunting and fishing um, and you know, gardening as recreational things because there's an intrinsic drive to do these things. We have an inherent interest in them. However, we live in a world in which a lot of things that we do um, are very bizarre from an evolutionary perspective and we don't really have an inherent uh, motivational drive to them. So we've had to kind of um, ha had to acculturate ourselves to this drudgery. 
And one thing that we've done in the process of acculturating ourselves to drudgery is that we've become very blind to how powerful intrinsic motivation is. And play is essentially, you know, play is something that you just want to do because of the thing, right? So you might be hunting because you need to eat, or you might hunt because it's rewarding. You might chase because you need to chase something, or you might chase because chasing is fun. Um, and when we look at the things that are intrinsically rewarding for people across all different cultures, that's actually a really good guide for the movement adaptions that are necessary in every group. And, you know, that have been necessary throughout a human evolution, right? So animals play in ways that are specific to their species, right? Cats like to stalk and pounce. Dogs like to chase and play tug of war because that's how those animals catch and kill their prey. Um, human beings like to climb trees because we're primates and we've spent, you know, 90 million years in the trees. We love games of chase and stalk and tag because we're predators, right? Uh, we love roughhousing and wrestling again because we're predators. Um, Although, I mean, like roughhousing is something that's universal in all mammals and really beyond mammals as well. Uh, it has many more functions than just teaching you phys physical competencies. I mean, it also teaches social emotional competencies as well. But that's a good point, actually, is that when we look at play, we're not just looking at a representation of the things that we've needed to do in the past a lot of the competencies that we need even now were sort of piggybacked on top of those things over time, right? So we started, we started having dominance disputes as lobsters or you know, crustaceans 400 million years ago or 600 million years ago, whenever it was. And, um, and we had to figure out a way not to kill each other and figure out who was the top dog. And that basic form of wrestling is something that then we see across the animal kingdom where two animals will try to pin each other. So for instance, um, venomous snakes. Venomous snakes do not bite each other with their venom. They wrap each other around and try to press the other one's head to the ground. Yak Pengsep, who I mentioned earlier, who's the guy who really discovered the neural circuitry of play in mammals, um, he worked on rats. And it turns out that rats, um, if you take two little uh, juvenile rats and you put them in a cage together, as soon as they kind of suss each other out and they, they'll invite a play scenario. And what they do is they wrestle. And the way that a rat knows that it has one wrestling is by pinning the other's shoulders to the ground and holding them down, which is a culturally universal form of play in human beings as well. So we see that it has these deep antecedents. What's interesting is that for a lot of animals that have very hardwired um, kind of, uh, behavioral repertoire like a cat a cat can can stalk and pounce you know just based off of um off of its inherited kind of characteristics um, and it's not necessarily going to be worse than a cat who's had an opportunity to play but what play does is it increases that, that cat's behavioral flexibility and also i think it really increases your social and emotional intelligence so um so I don't think human beings are like cats. I don't think that we know how to fight without knowing, without actually engaging in fighting. Um, we, we've, we've put, we've kind of offloaded a lot of stuff onto culture. Part of that is what's the appropriate way to actually engage in a fight. Um, so we need that from culture to that degree. So we need, we need those, those games and that play to be physically competent, but not just to be physically competent, to be social and emotionally competent. Uh, there's research that shows that in rat models, for instance, um, male rats who are denied rough and tumble play as uh, juveniles 
will fail to be able to effectively uh, court females and you know produce sexual relationships. And I think this is true of human beings too, to a lesser degree, right? We're, we're flexible, but uh, I think a lot of guys just don't know how to be, how to engage in touch, right? And how to engage in touch in appropriate ways and bring the appropriate uh, energy to, to a situation. So um, yeah, I'm kind of, uh, I feel like I've touched about a million threads there. I'm not sure where, where I should go with that, but, uh, but play essentially you could think of as an inherent educational system that an animal has that um, that reflects the the functions it evolved for, and you, it doesn't necessarily re reflect what is adaptive right now. But you can't really function well as a human being without having those uh, bases covered. And that's why we place a large emphasis on play. It's not only play, but it's why we fo focus on play. Yeah, that's really interesting, and I love I love those points because yeah, I I. I think I, I agree with like I guess the concept that we can't really be fully developed as humans um, just based on our, our evolutionary history and how important play has been without actually integrating it into our practice today and and I do see that lacking in a lot of people's kind of yeah even the emotional and social sides their ability to communicate their ability to relate to people their ability to have empathy or know how to touch or know how to like interact and move through certain situations is lacking generally because they haven't been able to play and explore those things. And I guess my question then would be, how do we start to integrate play in this kind of world that is very almost anti-play and anti-adaptability um, and very linear and very kind of like straight lines do this um, almost machine-like how do we start to integrate play back in and really start to bring it in as a daily kind of practice? Yeah. So one thing, you know, that we touched on there is there's, there's an inherent drive for play and there's inherent tendencies towards play. And then there's also a culture of play, right? So um, young children are inherently very interested in rough and tumble play. However, when you take children and you kind of prevent them from having access to it, they're not as good at it, right? Just like you have an inherent drive to to uh, to uh, to speak, right? To have language, right? Humans have an inherent capacity for language, but if you deny a child access to speaking to people, its language won't develop. And language, of course, can be very sophisticated and extraordinarily developed as an art. You know, poetry, music, song, or it can be quite rudimentary. Um, and it's the same thing with our play cultures, right? You can take something like rough and tumble play. And you can have, you know, incredible martial arts. You can have dances, all these things that tap on that that basic thing, or, or you can have, you know, people who are actually poorly integrated, and might end up injuring each other, might, you know, end up in a, a negative or dominance-based sort of uh, social emotional space through trying to access this. So we actually have to rebuild cultures of play, and I think the best place to start that is by actually looking at successful cultures of play. So parkour has spread throughout the world essentially as a culture of play, a community of practice oriented around doing something that's fun and engaging. Um, locomotive play, um, there's kind of three primary forms of movement play that play research talk about. There's locomotive play, exploring the environment, jumping, running, climbing. There's object-oriented play, right, like playing with Legos. Um, and then there's uh, rough and tumble play. And then you have other types of play like social play, narrative play, um, but we're not going to focus on those because I focus on movement, right? So parkour, I think, is 
is an extraordinary example of how um, essentially just creating a little bit of a game and giving people a chance to do it, the culture can generate lots of interesting things. And essentially, I think that parkour and skateboarding and snowboarding and mountain biking and surfing are all expressions of the same thing, right? They're all expressions of exploring your capacity to move in your capacity to locomote in the environment. The only thing that makes them different is that parkour doesn't have any kind of um, like force amplifiers, right? It doesn't have any locomotion amplifiers. Um, whereas all those others are defined by the way that you can do something that a human body normally couldn't. So you can slide faster, you can go faster. Um, if we look at something like uh, rough and tumble play, we can look at capoeira, we can look at jujitsu, we can look at um, uh, partner dances, contact improv, group dances, all those are essentially, uh, they're, they're, you can look at them and say, here's the game that's played, right? And that's one level of it. But you can also look at here are the, un, here are the, the rules of conduct around the game. And here are the way that people relate to each other. And here's the culture in a broader sense. And, you know, the culture of Capoeira, um, it has some wonderful things about it. You could also say that it has some negative things about it, right? Um, and that can be true of, of lots of different movement cultures. Um, but I think that one thing that's happened within the spread of movement culture is that we've actually, we've actually denuded the movement from the culture. So now there's all these people who can do Kirijihin's bridge rotations, right? And helicopteros who, um, who can't play the barambao and can't sing any of the songs and don't know how to play the game and don't know the history of where it came from. And I think this is a mistake. I think that, um, that when you isolate the movement from the culture, you, you lose some of the stuff that's most interesting. Um, so, but I think that, so if you go to Capoeira or you go to Jiu-Jitsu or you go to Contact Improv, you should study not just the movement and the way that people move, but the whole culture around it. And all of that can be a source of how we, we build it. Um, so uh, that, that's kind of how you could go about doing it. How, what we've come to is this idea that uh, essentially, you know, there, there are games that are uh, infinite and there are games that are finite, right? Some games sort of run out. Um, an example I like to give is, uh, so, I'm, I'm kind of using that term maybe in the wrong way because uh, I, I'm trying to get at two different things. One is, are we playing so that I win or, or you win? Or are we playing so that we can both keep playing? That's, mm -hmm. that's finite versus infinite. But there's also, are we playing a game that has an infinite set of ways that it could go, but enough structure that it's always interested and we always have a goal? Mm -hmm. Or are we playing a game that ends up sort of uh, that's self-defeating around, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Um, Self-eliminating, right? So uh, chess has a simple set of rules, but if you were to, there are essentially, um, I think that the average chess game takes 60 moves and there are 30 potential, uh, 60 plays and there are 30 potential moves per play, which means that the number of, uh, of, of, ways that the game could play out is 30 to the 60 or 60 to the 30, one of those. 
whatever it is, that's like as many electrons as there are in the universe. It's, just, it's, it's, it's functionally infinite. So you can never exhaust chess. On the other hand, you can look at a game like Connect Four or Tic-Tac-Toe. And these games that eliminate themselves because once you understand the game, if you don't make a mistake and you get the first move, you always win. Yeah. So we want to create games that have this potential for, for, for exploring an infinite space. So um, within parkour, what I've noticed is that if people become too obsessed with, say, a set of skills that you achieve, that that is a self-eliminating strategy. Because once you achieve, it's like, um, let's say, we could just like say, you, you're going to do the backflips, right? How many backflip variations can you get? So you can do a backflip, and then you can do a piked backflip, and then you can do a half-twisting backflip, and then a full-twisting backflip. And then a double twisting backflip and then a triple twisting backflip, um, double backflip, triple backflip. The point is that you can either reach the highest level that's ever been reached or you fail some point because you don't have the till, the skill, the talent, the environment, whatever it is that's necessary to reach that highest point. But even if you reach the highest point, if that's the game, the game is just to flip more times or just to spin more times, there's a point at which you're just not going to achieve that any longer. Yeah. But when you have an you know, like when the game is find interesting ways to move through complex spaces, you can never run out of that. Yeah. Um, so that, that's a key thing. So we talk about that. Um, and then within the other aspects we talk about are you need, uh, we, we call them the four S's. You need safety, success, um, scalability, and support, right? So safety. If you are a, if you're um, in danger all the time, if, and that, that can be physical danger, that can be social danger, but if you are constantly in a state of of of, uh, of anxiety in the thing that you're doing, you will burn yourself out, and you won't want to do it for the long run, right? And if you constantly play at the edge of what you're capable of to the point where you're constantly getting damaged, you're going to erode your own capacity. Every time you're injured is time that you're not progressing. Um, so you have to learn to play the game safely enough. Yeah. There's no playing it perfectly safely because if yeah. it was perfectly safe, it's not a game anymore, really. Um, you have to have risk, but you need, you need it to be safe enough. And this is a huge thing about why we use contact improv to introduce people to martial arts. Because for most people, um, the starting point of a live martial arts, the martial arts that actually work, is actually too advanced and they don't feel safe yet, they haven't built the rapport and all the things that they need, and so people get burned out by that. It's very easy to kind of break that. Uh, the second thing um, is success, right? So if you look at Yak Pengsef's work on rats, rats, um, so if you, you put the two little rats together, if you, if you have one of the rats be 10% bigger than the other rat, then it, anytime you match one rat that's 10% bigger than the other rat, for the first time, the bigger rat will pin the smaller rat. So now you have a dominance hierarchy there. And the next time they meet, the smaller rat will be the one that invites play. So the, the dominant rat doesn't invite play with the, with the subordinate rat. But the subordinate rat invites the play with the, with the bigger rat. And then they'll play. And now over time, what you'll see is that if the larger rat doesn't allow the smaller rat to win at least 30% of the time, the smaller rat will slowly lose interest in the game and will cease to invite play with that dominant animal. So 
there's a there's a there's a ratio of challenge that makes the game engaging. And this is a big thing that Mihai um, Csikszentmihalyi has talked about uh, in his book Flow, right? Um, optimal experience is being challenged um, hard enough, but with enough success, right? So you want high confidence and high challenge. So you know, that 70-30 ratio, that's not something that's like a, a fixed ratio in every game for every individual. It's just a way to start thinking about the problem. And um, so you, you need to be successful often enough for the game to stay engaging, or essentially you're going you're gonna to develop too much negative emotion associated with that every time that you play, and slowly you'll, you'll lose interest in that game. Um, what Mihai Csikszentmihalyi points out is that part of that is actually a mindset. Can you shift what, you, what your targets are such that you can su see success? Uh, so for instance, if you're, if you're playing jiu-jitsu and you're say a white belt and maybe you're 120 pounds and maybe you're kind of physically sickly um, and, you're, you're, and you just happen to show up at a gym where it's like all brown belts and black belts and they're all like 200 pound killers who are like, you know, uh, construction workers on top of what they're doing, right? So they're just coming in and smashing you every time, right? So if you, if you, in your mind, the only win that you can, you can imagine is when you get that other guy to tap out, you're gonna lose interest really rapidly, right? It's just gonna be punishing, it's not gonna happen for you. However, if you can find a win and say, hold retaining your guard for a little bit longer against that black belt, right? or you know, denying him the Kimura that he's hit you with uh, over and over again, and then he has to move to a secondary move, right? Or, or you know, getting a couple scrambles where you escape, right? Or even just getting a little elevation on the sweep. Every time that you can find your small wins, you can tune yourself to essentially experience the flow state more. Some people are naturally more psychologically robust and will be able to find that easier, and some people are gonna need to be much more mindful about it and have coaches that are more mindful about getting them into that optimal state. So that's success. Um, and then um, scalability. Well, scalability is basically what I just mentioned. It's the ability to create that success. And the last thing is support. Um, humans are social animals. And if you don't have a community around you that affirms what you're doing, that can be really hard. Uh, I'm. I think I'm a, a relatively unique individual in that I'm pretty, I'm pretty unmoved by other people's opinions. And so I was able to go and train in the woods when nobody else was training in the woods doing parkour uh, for a couple of years all by myself. But for most people, um, you'd rather do something that you, it's like 80% of your favorite thing that everybody else loves than 100% of your favorite thing that nobody else is into. Um, we, we, and so community of practice is incredibly key, right? And one thing I, I find all the time with people is they're like, you know, what martial arts should I, should I choose? And they'll like have some really esoteric martial art, like, you know, um, I'm gonna do Kalariati Patui, right? Like that's the, I can't, I, I mispronounced that, but the, the Indian martial art. Uh, I'm like, just choose jujitsu, right? Choose, <laughs> choose karate, choose wrestling. Right, because there's lots of people, right? And if you go to a school and the coach is a dick, then you can walk down the street and find another school. Um, but if you, you know, 
like, is it worth driving three hours to find the one teacher of this, you know, ancient school of Chinese martial arts, you know, that, that may or may not have anything special. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm a believer that when you can get involved in somewhat larger tents, um, it's easier to find people who are your tribe. Um, not always, but it's, it's a useful thing to think about. It's like, where am I going to be able to go and find a tribe of people who I'm going to really get on with? Because that's going to be a huge impact on having success in the way that you move. So that's kind of um, uh, one of the ways that we think about that. And I, I guess um, that's how you'd set up your own practice. But then as a coach or a facilitator of a community of practice, you're always looking to make sure that those things are present, right? Yeah. Uh, are these people safe, sufficiently safe? Right? Are they experiencing success regularly or am I training them to recognize success even in difficulty? Um, am I scaling things effectively for them or showing them how things can be scaled to their level? And, and then are we creating a supportive social environment because that more than anything else is what's going, is what people get more out of any community of practice than anything else and what keeps people coming back. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely resonate with a few points there especially i notice in when i'm coaching like the safety one when there's not that level of safety people aren't adaptable people aren't creative they're not going to push outside their comfort zone they're not going to stretch themselves they're not going to try new things and really being able to create that safety is amazing and, and definitely like all the other ones like success for sure is is a massive one like being able to have just that level where people feel that they're coming in. I love that point of just changing the mindset of success and being like, okay, what's, what is the win in this situation that is actually doable for me? And how can I like start counting up those wins so that it, I can keep coming back to it. I really love those points. Um, so what, so obviously a lot of your training is based out in nature and a lot of what you do, you, you kind of um, promote this idea of getting out into nature to move. Why do you think um, getting out into nature is so important and how do you see the connection between being out in nature and movement and training? Yeah, so I think the most, the, the, the least, or the, uh, what is this, like boiling it down to the most basic claim. A really, really basic claim is that being in nature is good for you and it's pleasant and, it's, and we can enjoy the beauty of nature and then moving is good for us. So if we put these two things together, we've just stacked benefits on ourselves, right? So I'm a busy man. I run a company. I have three children. You know, I've got a lot going on. Um, if I have to go for a hike separately from my parkour training, um, then that's maybe, uh, you know, a, like a seven-hour commitment. But if I do them together, it's just a two- or three-hour commitment. And now, now my life has more space in it. Right. Um, there's tons of research that shows that spending time in natural spaces is really good for human beings. Right? So there's the whole Japanese tradition of Shinraiku, I think it's called forest bathing. You know, they show that time in the forest, you know, lowers your resting heart rate, you know, brings your blood pressure down, your hormonal systems are optimized, time spent in the sun. Uh, obviously, vitamin D everyone knows about, but also, um, you know, that sets your cortisol rhythm. So, you know, we have tons of people with sleep disturbances in our culture, which is very associated with anxiety and depression. Um, it's early morning sun exposure that is the biggest thing that's going to set your circadian rhythm. Uh, exposure to sunlight uh, 
basically starts the pituitary uh, sending out luteinizing hormone, which is the which is basically upstream of your sex hormones. So luteinizing and follicle stimulating hormones are actually what stimulate your, uh, your testes or your ovaries to produce testosterone, estrogen, all the associated compounds, progesterone, whatever it is. So like in some sense, like getting sun exposure is like steroids, right? <laughs> it's free, healthy steroids. Now you're not going to get super physiological doses. You know, don't think that sunbathing is going to make you look like Ronnie Coleman. Um, but if you're suffering from lower testosterone or, you know, uh, or, you know, your sex drive is, you know, smashed, getting sun can help with that. And, you know, just generally optimizing your health, the sun is going to be a huge impact on it. And there's, there's way more aspects of, of what sunlight does for you than we know. Um, we know that like microbes in the soil can have mood elevating effects. We know that there's uh, phytochemicals breathed out by trees. So, um, nature is good for you. That's, that's number one. Um, time spent in green spaces is similarly replenishing to time spent napping, for instance, and your ability to pay voluntary attention. So why not just train in nature? Because, you know, it's good for you. That's, that's number one. Number two is, uh, well, your body actually comes from nature, right? So just like your body evolved to engage in specific forms of play because those were important to your nature, to your, to, to your function as a human being, well, all of that function actually happened within the natural world, right? So why can a human being pole dance? Why can a human being do ring strength? Why can a human being uh, do the high bar or the pole, uh, parallel bars or the pole uh, or um, the uneven bars? All of those are essentially expressions of our evolution as arboreal animals. So the source of gymnastics and pole dancing and circus arts um, is trees, right? So when you go back to the trees, you're getting the kind of the original whole food source of that stuff. And, the, and that I think is actually profound because um, there's more nutrition in it. And the example that I like to give is the hand of a tree climber versus the hand of a say ring specialist or someone who lifts barbells or you know crossfitter what you'll see is that um, in all the kind of functional let's call them functional training as opposed to natural training all the functional training disciplines um, you look at someone's hand and you'll see a line of callus across the just below the bottom of the fingers and on the fingers and that, that callus will be very hard kind of horn-like skin and then they might have little kind of pathways of callus down the hand, but then there'll be skin on the hand that's completely soft. It looks like any office worker's hand. Um, but if you look at my hands, you look at someone who's a, a veteran tree climber, you'll notice that the, the, the callus starts at the palm and goes all the way to the tops of the fingers. And there's a little bit of localized buildup here in these lines, but it's actually less severe than in a ring specialist. And this is important because essentially callus is the way that the skin of the hand adapts to being loaded. So, the problem when you have a very, very um, hard callus next to very untrained skin is you have a proportional, proportional strength problem, right? So it's, it's, you know, like having an iron cable pulling on a bathroom tissue, right? When the iron cable pulls hard, the bathroom tissue is going to rip. Mm. And 
Um, so you need a distributed strength in the skin throughout your hand. And if you have local, very strong tissues in small local regions next to very weak tissues, that's a mechanism for injury. And I believe that's actually true of the entire body. That's an analogy for how the body is. So when we train in very limited patterns, what we're doing is producing lines of strength and relationships of strength that our nervous system controls well. And then we have lots of our body that's actually still just as atrophied and weak and sedentary as if we had not been training at all. And when we take a quad or sap that can, uh, that can squat 400 pounds and we have it try to move a knee that's in a valgus position and that knee hasn't ever been in a valgus position, right? Or isn't regularly exposed to a valgus position, that's going to be a mechanism for an injury in the same way as that hard callus next to the soft callus. So in my opinion, tree climbing, is more nourishing for the body and better and a better balanced nutrient from the body um, than pull-ups or ring work in the same way that it is better to eat an orange for your health than it is to take a vitamin C supplement or to get sun exposure rather than take a vitamin D supplement. For us, natural movements, those are the movements that we evolved with, are whole food and everything else is a supplement. Right? And it can be a, an effective supplement, it can be a necessary supplement, but it's not the real thing. And you should be building your movement diet off of the real thing. Um, so that's the second argument that I have, is that you will basically be a more adaptable and much longer lasting athlete when you base your body, uh, your, your, your movement off of these, uh, these movements in these environments. Yeah, I love that. And it, it really is just honoring our design as human beings, like understanding that we are we do come from nature and that's you know our original place of movement or our original place of being and yeah. when we remove ourselves from that environment you know we will become less adaptable and we it, it, just like you said it's, it's getting more of that whole food nourishment rather than supplements i really love that kind of analogy um so a couple more questions before we wrap up um what kind of inspired you to start evolve move play and and move into this business that you now have and what's that journey been like over the last few years that, from when you started it to now? Hmm. I mean, it just sort of was an idea that was, I couldn't get out of my head, I guess, right? It was like there, it seemed like, um, so I, I fell in love with gymnastics after the 1996 Olympics. And then when I discovered parkour, it was as if someone had kind of revealed to me the substrate upon which gymnastics had been built. There was a more real, more profound version of it. Um, but parkour was not, parkour was much closer to the expression of how a human being inherently moves. But it still lacked these things like rough and tumble play and object-oriented play um, that are fundamental to the human movement adaption. So it was, it was limited in scope. And it was expressed primarily in an environment that was evolutionarily novel. And so I wanted to do that. Um, I, I mentioned CrossFit was actually a big influence as well. I, I just went back recently, I was doing some research and I read the original CrossFit journal from 2004. And they talk about a human being basically comes from nature and all of these movement capacities that we have are natural and we have an arboreal background, terrestrial background and there's two things that they say that, well, there's a few things that I think they get wrong, but one of them is they say they choose that their exercise selection is influenced by natural means. 
they choose exercises that look more like natural movements rather than actually choosing natural movements. And uh, the second thing they said is, um, they said the gymnastics was the best expression of the arboreal aspect of human evolution uh, or the locomotive aspect of human evolution, right? We can look at how we move ourselves and how we move objects, all right? And for them, weightlifting is the best way to look at how we move objects and gymnastics is the best way to how we, how we look, how we move ourselves. But I don't think the gymnastics is the best way to look at how a human being moves themselves. Parkour is, and parkour adapted to nature is an even better representation of that. Um, and then, you know, weightlifting is great, and I, I think it's a, a good tool, but I think like strongman is a little bit more representative, right? And also throwing and catching sports are very important. Um, and then there's a huge missing piece in that, which is how do you move with other, other things, right? Can you fight? Can you dance? You know, can you work in, in parallel, and like in cooperation with other things? Can you ride a horse? Like those are all things that were, were expressions of, of human movement that have to do with your ability to read and respond to another animal. Um, and if you don't have that, I, I don't think that you're truly a functional person, right? Um, so my, my you know, the, the, the CrossFit archetype is middle distance runner, gymnast, strongman. And very early on after I read those documents, I was like, no, it's parkour, MMA athlete, and strongman. And, and I would also add actually team sport athlete, right? Because I think that there's a lot about hand-eye coordination, catching and throwing and striking are all incredibly important aspects of our evolved heritage. And there's something you see in play everywhere in the world. Um, and so that's kind of my archetype. And I just thought that, uh, that it was frustrating that people didn't get it and that people were so close to understanding it, but weren't seeing the whole picture that I saw. So that was my motivation for, for doing this. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's funny how there's so much complexity in, in human movement and there's so much complexity in movement and a, a lot of systems seem to um, just reduce that complexity and try and box it in and try and remove the adaptability and, and, and really the full spectrum. Um, and I, I love what you're doing with Evolve Move Play. Um, I'm really inspired by it. And yeah, it's awesome to see it unfold in that journey and, and to follow along. Um, so fine, or a couple more questions. So what's, what's one thing for people listening that you would suggest that they do today to help them on their movement journey if they're just wanting to get into movement and just getting started with this whole world of movement? What's one thing that you would point people in the direction of doing? Yeah, I mean, I, I always start with simple, right? Like as a child, I spent a lot of time walking through the woods. And I still think that it is, the walking is the biggest missing movement nutrient and time in nature is one of the biggest psychological nutrients that we need and that when we give ourselves space to simply be in nature and to walk that that can be um, a place where the inspiration and the desire and the curiosity to start exploring other forms of movement are automatically happening right you take a walk through the woods and you see a, um, a fallen log over a stream and you just inherently kind of are curious about can i balance across that log that right there is the beginning of the expression of parkour, right? You see a tree and you hang from a branch. So I just think that whenever we are, when we're at the beginning of it, or anytime we need to restart, a walk through the woods is a really beautiful place to start. It doesn't have to be the woods, but walk through nature, right? That's, that's where I would start. And take time, take a breath, sit down, you know, start, you got to let go of your programming. 
got to let go of the idea that fitness is just something that happens in the gym, that adults don't climb trees, you know, that people are going to look at you funny. Um, so you got to give yourself some space. Uh, I think going into nature actually really helps because it can remove you from the, the problem of other seeing, people seeing you too. Um, but that's, that's pretty much where I offer what I think is the best place to start. Yeah, I love that. That's great. Uh, so finally, how can people connect with you and follow along with your work? Yeah. Uh, so evolvementplay.com is our website. Uh, people who really want to know what we're doing definitely get involved with our newsletter. Uh, we'll be launching our, um, our next iteration of the kind of Evolvement Play online uh, platform for online courses coming up in the next few weeks. And we also have um, a whole system around all these people who are coming on our podcast and creating resources for people off of that to help, you know, as a kind of educational platform. Um, and we just did the Embody Movement Summit, which you, I believe you mentioned earlier, uh, and that kind of some of the resources from that are going to be coming out through this, this platform. So evolvementplay.com, get on our newsletter. Um, we're also on social media, Instagram, Rafe Kelly, uh, Facebook, Rafe Kelly, and YouTube, Rafe Kelly. Um, and uh, that's where people can find us. Awesome. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today, Rafe. Thank you so much for yeah. sharing and coming on. Thank you, Jake. Yeah. All right. Thank you all so much for tuning in to today's episode. So what I want you to do, if you like this show, if you got value out of this show, then please take a screenshot on your phone and share it on whatever social media platform that you use, whether it be Instagram or Facebook, and tag myself and Rafe, and let us know your thoughts on today's show. We'd really appreciate it, uh, and it really helps get the message out to more people. If you haven't already, please also leave this podcast a rating and a review. Uh, that also goes a long way towards getting the message out to more people. So as I mentioned in the show, all the links to connect with Rafe are going to be down in the show notes, so you can check that out. I highly recommend checking out his Instagram and his website. He's got a whole bunch of cool stuff up there, and you can learn more about his stuff. And obviously, if you want to connect with me, you can also head down to the show notes where I've got links to my website, my email, and you can also follow me down there on Instagram at move underscore wild. And I look forward to hearing from all of you guys and seeing what you thought of today's episode. Again, really appreciate all of you listening in. So I'll catch you on the next episode of Move Wild Podcast coming out on Friday.